Coming up today on the Lead to Succeed podcast. But the most powerful thing was I actually had one of my members, not a member of the leadership team, but a senior manager reach out to me and pull me aside once. And he's a very candid person. And he said, James, you know, I want to share something with you. And he goes, first off, I'm going to give you a compliment. You almost always have the right answer. And I said, okay, his name was Scott. And I said, I appreciate that. And he goes, I need to tell you your biggest problem. And I said, okay. And he goes, you almost always have the right answer. Do you want to learn the tricks that top leaders use to get the most out of themselves and their teams? Well, Naftali Hoff is here to help lead to succeed. Picks the brains of top leaders to learn about their challenges, insights, and best practices. Here's Naftali. Hello, Lead to Succeed Nation. It's Naftali Hoff, and welcome to Lead to Succeed, episode 130. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with James Lawrence. James is the co-founder of Happy, which enables organizations to enhance organizational culture, communication, and manager effectiveness at scale. Its Happy Coaching platform uses behavioral science and AI to build a user manual for your entire team in less than 10 minutes. James previously served as chairman of the board for the Specialty Equipment Market Association. He also served as CEO and founder of Power Automedia and CEO of Speed Video. Throughout his career, James strongly emphasized nurturing talent and fostering the next generation of leaders, always with an eye toward meaningful work. James, so glad to have you on the show today. Naftali, well, thank you very much for the welcome. I'm excited to uh, talk to you. Yeah, it's going to be a great conversation. So why don't we sort of peel back the onion a little bit? Uh, I read the bio, but tell us a little bit more about your journey in, I guess you would say, human terms. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I I, I tell you the where I normally start with this is I try not to make it too long, but I had an unusual upbringing. So both of my parents were psychologists mm. and not just psychologists, but uh, psychoanalysts. Mm -hmm. And I was the kid that grew up, my dad had a home office and I was the kid that grew up with his dad having a bust of Sigmund Freud on his desk. Hmm. So you can imagine the, uh, the chats, you know, with a fourth grader looking at this bust of <laughs> Freud. So when my dad says, how was your day? It had a lot of layers to it. I'm sure it did. I'm sure you didn't, you didn't just get an answer of fine. Great. Go on and play. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny. My dad, uh, he was kind of a wannabe entrepreneur his whole life, but but he was a professor. And so kind of growing up as the son of two of two doctors like that, you know, I really just got to I got steeped in in learning people very early on um, and, you know, been really blessed to, to be an entrepreneur my whole life. I've, I've gotten a chance to start five companies and uh, build build five companies, five cultures, and, and certainly have learned a lot through the process about people. Um, and have made a lot of mistakes, by the way, Mr. Dolly. I think, you know, standing here today and working with people every day from a technology standpoint, you know, I've realized that, uh, you know, you learn, you, you certainly get your experience as a leader uh, by doing it. Yes, yes. And we're going to unpack that further. So I am curious, how did you, I mean, entrepreneurship is incredible. And you said five different companies, five different yeah. businesses. I don't know if they're all in the same sector or not, but right now you're, you're coaching, you're, you're helping people with, with team building. Uh, how did you specifically wind up over there? Is it because of all you observed growing up? Was it a different passion or interest? How did you transition? 
Yeah, so that's an interesting question. Probably about 15 years ago, um, I felt like, you know, our organization I was running at the time had about 80 people full time. And I started to see some gaps and blind spots in my own leadership. And um, I kind of took a leadership inventory. And, you know, frankly, I wanted to get better um, for my people. I felt like, you know, you ask a lot of your employees. And I think as a CEO, sometimes you have to ask yourself, how good are you? And are you doing everything in your power to be able to support your team? And so, you know, I decided to go find an executive coach. And I found a gentleman by the name of John Delmatoff uh, about 15 years ago. And John had been a longtime executive coach. And, um, you know, I really got a lot from working with John. You know, we met every every week. And, you know, he introduced me to, uh, you know, psychometric testing. And I I, you know, took my first disc assessment that I had never taken before. And I took a Myers-Briggs and I just started to really understand uh, some of the principles of servant leadership and, you know, understand myself better, build some self-awareness. And I found the experience of working with an executive coach just to be incredibly valuable. And so, you know, I kind of followed the traditional roadmap of how people, uh, when they're CEOs and they, they create a great relationship with a coach, I thought, wow if I could get my leadership team to get the same benefits that I got from this executive coach, like what an amazing experience to upskill our leadership team. Not that we didn't have good leaders, mind you, but you know, they had blind spots and just like I did and, and had areas of opportunity. And so, you know, really for me, it was, you know, how do I extend this value to my team? And so, you know, John couldn't coach the entire executive group. So, you know, he coached like two people in our team. And then I brought in another coach and it was a good experience. We had about seven, seven people roughly. And it was a good, not great. I would say like if my executive coaching value was an A at whatever John was charging me at the time, when I expanded to the entire leadership team, it became like a B. And the reason was like, now I'm trying to kind of bring executive coaching to seven people. The two different coaches had a little bit different style. So John had a little different style than the other coach we were using. And so, you know, the messaging was a little different. And then not all seven were totally bought in. Um, I think maybe five of the seven, but we still got like uh, actionable benefit from the what I would call the human coaching. And so Naftali, I know this is like what you do every day. So, you know, you know, I would say the next step then was like, how do we get the same kind of meaningful value to the entire organization? Mm. And so we had 70 people. And so then it became like, okay, meaningful, incredible value one-on-one -on -one with me, reasonably good value with my leadership team. But like, how do I get this to 70 people? And we followed the playbook of like seminars, workshops, everybody got an assessment. We had a facilitator talk about assessments. And I would say that like, the A with me and like the B to B plus for the leadership team became like, honestly, about a C at scale. Like some people really took to it. Some people, you know, didn't respond to the group setting. And then frankly, almost everybody had a decline of value over time as the seminar faded. We had to bring in another workshop and do another handbook, but we really struggled anyways to really get this implemented at scale. Now, granted, this was 15 years ago, but in the back of my head, I thought, boy, this is really hard to do at scale. Like to really get 
EQ improvement, improve soft, soft skills, managerial training, leadership skill development. Like this is hard to do at scale. And then I only imagine what it was like if you had 500 or 1,000 or 1,500 people. And so that was actually the beginning of the thoughts of happy in the back of my head of like, how can we improve this? So that, again, that was, that was like the, that was the Thomas Edison light bulb. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I, I am curious, you said a lot, but I want to go back to something you said at the very beginning where you indicated that you identified some, some blind spots and yeah. some weaknesses in your own leadership. And that, that motivated you to reach out to a coach. And usually people will reach out to coaches when they feel like they have a problem, which is not right. surprising. Yeah. You know, maybe same truth. The same thing is typically true for doctors too, though people will go proactively to a doctor because they recognize the value or yeah. the need to see a doctor. They recognize the need to see certain professionals. Coaching I have found to be different. I think people need to really understand what coaching is for and why it's beneficial and all of that. But I'm curious to know, how did you, what was it that brought you to this awareness of these blind spots? And, um, and, 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 and how did you then know to make coaching, so to speak, the solution? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, boy, there's a lot of, a uh, lot of mistakes to choose from. Naftali. <laughs> um, I think probably the biggest thing was a recognition, you know, um, I'm a type A personality, so I have a lot of energy. And I think I led everybody uh, with a similar ethos, which is, you know, I'm going to get you really excited. I'm going to deliver an emotional appeal to a sense of team. Uh, I'm really, you know, one of my strong points, I think, is to, to talk about mission alignment so I can talk about a new project or a new mission effectively. But I was recognizing, even in my own leadership team, you know, there was different work styles in that team. And even though I, maybe I'm putting it in language now that I'm more comfortable with, but at the time I just realized people were different than me and I wasn't connecting with them and I wasn't getting the outcomes I wanted. But the most powerful thing was I actually had one of my members, not a member of the leadership team, but a senior manager reach out to me and pull me aside once. And he's a very candid person. And he said, James, you know, I want to share something with you. And he goes, first off, I'm going to give you a compliment you almost always have the right answer. And I said, okay, his name was Scott. And I said, I appreciate that. And he goes, I need to tell you your biggest problem. And I said, okay. And he goes, you almost always have the right answer. I knew that was coming. And I said, okay. And he goes, you're the smartest person in the room and everybody knows it when you leave. And sometimes they don't like to work with you because of that. And I realized like, this really hit me. And I realized like, the style that I was leading with was good for some, but it what didn't work for everybody. And it definitely wasn't a servant style. And I was good about getting people excited, but I wasn't getting the outcomes, you know, and frankly, you know, luckily coming from, a, you know, a background of having therapist parents, like I did, I always valued like one-on-one -on -one connection. And what's really funny is we make software that provides technology at scale, right? But humans are always the last mile. Like, while even though we have a tech solution, like I think great coaching is irreplaceable. You know, it makes a huge difference. It can make a huge actual, if the right coach is at the right time in someone's life, it makes a huge difference. And John was that for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what is it that you are providing at scale, <clears throat> utilizing AI and your other tools 
uh, to be able to help, whether it's coaching or team building or whatnot? What is that process? Yeah, great question. So I'm going to take you back a little bit. I'm going to connect the dots first because you might go like, okay, you had this idea 15 years ago. And like, why are we on a podcast today talking about this? So um, about four years ago, right, you know, co- right, right around COVID time, we, in our years-long struggle to improve the emotional intelligence in our organization, I had a very good friend of mine that was a director in a Fortune 500 company, and they had printed baseball cards for, they had made baseball cards for every one of their employees with their like hmm. disc style on there. And it had like do's and don'ts with communicating with me and like a little bit about my story at work and a little bit about my background. Like people could put it like, oh, I love cooking and like a little bit of contextual information. And, and we had made them for everybody in the company or most of the people in the company. And I had one outside my door. And as a joke, Naftali, I took, instead of my picture, I put a little robot for my photo. And it was just like Mm -hmm. a little humor. I don't know, like instead of putting my picture. So I had a CEO walk in the door, stop at my front door, look at it. And he just stared there for about a minute. And he comes inside and he goes, this is brilliant. What software program built this? And I said, no, there's no software program. It was like graphic designer laid all these out in like Google Slides or something. And he didn't believe me. And he goes, no, I want to know, like, I know you're a techie. Like, I want to implement that in my company. What software program built that? And he walked out the door. And I didn't think anything of it. And I woke up at four in the morning and I'm like, holy cow. I just thought the solution to everything I've been thinking about for the last 10 years is how do we use technology, behavioral science and AI? Like, can we use these tools? And then when hybrid work happened, I thought, I said happen. I know hybrid works happen online, but when when COVID happened and really hybrid and remote and on-site work became yeah. all together, that's when I kind of realized like there was this opportunity to do this. So that's mm-hmm. that's setting the table. Okay. So having said that, what actually is the process? Like what does yeah, that look good, like for people? Good question. So I'll tell you the, the our end outcome is a couple of things you mentioned. Organizational culture, uh improving communication and collaboration and managerial and leadership effectiveness at scale. And so essentially what we do is we build a user manual for an entire company in 10 minutes. And we use it using behavioral science and AI. And kind of like that baseball card, it's the same principle. And here's how it works. Can you give me the name of someone you work with? Just any name. Ina. Ina. Okay. So. With a D. Ina. Dina, 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 Dina. Okay. So Dina goes into our platform, takes the happy assessment and it learns Dina's work style. And because you're already in the happy platform, it knows your work style. You can look up Dina's work style at any time. And it tells you, gives you insights on how to work better with her. I can look up Dina's work style and it can tell me how to work better with her and give me insights on her work style. The difference with our platform compared to like, say a traditional assessment is because the platform knows you and it knows me. When we look up Dina, it doesn't give us the same insights. It actually provides custom personalized, contextualized insights based on each of our work styles. So it gives you insights on how to work together, knowing your work style and knowing the person you're looking up. And because the platform knows both of your work styles, it now can render you coaching, nudges, uh, suggestions. Um, basically it gives you tips, you know, at scale and it does it not just in the app, but in the flow of work. So Slack, 
Microsoft Teams, you know, Gmail, Chrome, you know, it's able to deliver these insights and nudges that are kind of smart insights and nudges and coaching insights at scale, but using the tools you already use. Very interesting. I'm thinking about this because I, I do training on, on, on different leadership styles. Yeah. And one system that I often use is called True Colors. Yeah. Um, and, and it's got four, four basic categories, let's say. Um, I identify largely as a green, which is, I guess, yeah. um, um, contrasted with a blue. Blues tend to be more empathic, more people-oriented. People Everything is about relationships. Greens tend to be more problem-oriented, problem-solution-oriented. Tell me what the issue is. I'll go in and solve it. I, so I'm not so interested in how is your day, all that kind of stuff. I'm more like, I want to get in and do that. So the blues have a hard time with the greens and vice versa because the sure. blues see the greens as 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 not respecting them, not connecting with them. The greens feel like it's a bunch of a bunch of fluff and I just want to talk practically about what needs to get done, et cetera. So in the context of all of that, you have exercises where you have Tom the green and Jane the blue and they have to interact with each other and you go through these case studies, that kind of thing. Sure. So what is, I'm just curious, what is the process of feeding AI with sort of a framework for a person's work style that it could then intelligently balance that person's against your own and give you this kind of bespoke guidance on where there might be an where there might be some 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 uh, friction what's the best way to interact all that kind of thing is there is there an underlying system that you're using or did is or does it just um pull from the collective data out there. I don't even know what that would be yeah. in order to that's inform a, its, its its decision. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I, I think I would start by, you know, you referenced it was true colors, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. So, you know, our our assessment methodology is modeled on disk. And so we've got our own yeah. behavioral science team and we've and, and I want to start with something that's a little bit interesting. So obviously there's a lot of good assessment products out there. And um we started uh, an interesting process, which was when we decided to, I decided to sell, I was running three companies uh, in 2019. I owned three, my family did. And we decided to sell all of our businesses to do this. So it was a big, it was a big leap. And so we invested a lot of time, a lot of resources. And the first thing I did in 2011 and 20, or sorry, 2021, 2022 was I went on a focus group tour uh, and I spent almost a year talking to somewhere between a thousand business leaders, CEOs, heads of HR. And I ask a lot of questions similar to what you just led with, which is like, how do you identify work styles? Where, where do you see as your pain points as a leader? Um, I ask executive coaches, like, what tools do you use? What are the biggest challenges you have? Like when you work with a client, I'm sure you have to like facilitate that assessment and talk them through it. And like, how do you, you know, what are the biggest pains in that? And so one of the, and the reason I'm, I'm, I'm answering this, I know a little bit longer answer again, but one of the pains that people surfaced was actually got there before the technology of how to render the right piece of coaching. And it was actually like, how do you get someone to actually believe in their work style? Or like, how do you get someone to have the self-awareness to even care? And one of the advantages that you have in your worldview is when you're coaching someone, they're paying for it or their company's paying for it or someone's paying for it. And so they're pretty engaged in like, hey, 
I care what, you know, my assessment says, and I care what Naftali says, because I'm trying to get something from it. When you're trying to do this at scale, we might have 500 to 1,000 people in a platform, you know, from a company. And some of them are like, wow, I really want to learn about this. And other people are like, I just want to do my job. And like, I'm not trying to be self-aware today. Like, I just need to get my yeah. stuff done. And the reason I bring this up is what we found is, is, is that you have to do something really, really important, which is get buy-in before you even render a piece of coaching. And so your question was like, how does the system know how to produce a quality piece of insights, right? Because like you've been doing this for a long time. So you're going through 20 years of experience. Like what would be the most appropriate way to coach this person that I'm working with? And then the problem we had is if the person's not interested in being coached, it doesn't really matter how good the guidance is because they're not in the right state of mind or they don't, they, they're not gelling with the, with kind of the whole idea of improving. And so it actually, part of the science starts, to answer your question, part of the science starts with the assessment technology. So a certain percentage of people reject assessments. And so there's a couple of reasons why. Some aren't self-aware. But one of the actual most common things when you look at the research on this is when they reject an assessment, they say the following. That doesn't sound like me. Now, I want, I want to make a footnote. They don't say that isn't me. They go, that doesn't sound like me, or I don't like how that sounds. Or And so what happens is you actually realize that part of it is some people do just not like assessments, but then other people just don't like the words that are chosen. Because as you know, you know, coming from psychology, word choice is a big thing. Like yep. certain words have very different emotional responses to people. And so what we recognized was, we needed to build an assessment technology that not only was good at identifying a work style, but that it increased the acceptance rate pretty significantly. And so our assessment technology includes something called linguistic preference. And the way the assessment works is, is that when it's actually asking you the questions, after it figures out what work style you are, it then adapts to start asking you questions about different words and which words you prefer and which sentences you prefer. And ultimately it creates a work style that you have opted into. You've picked a lot of the words and descriptors as things that you prefer you're more comfortable with. Mm -hmm. The reason mm -hmm. I preface this with your original mm -hmm. question is when you then start coaching people, it's mm -hmm. important that you think about the language that they like to use and how they like to describe themselves. So the way the system works is we do use generative AI. We do use our own language modeling. We use our own work style and science modeling to explain what all of these different work styles, uh, the different traits of a different work style. DISCs modeled on you know, introversion and extroversion, people orientation, task orientation. So that's kind of the underlying modeling behind DISC. But we're looking at something a little deeper, which is how do we take two different work styles and then render coaching to each other. And so, you know, we're using generative AI to create like thousands of pieces of, of coaching content. There's good news and bad news though. The good news is the AI is, is very adept at creating what I consider to be a, a high volume using our own prompting and our own uh, uh, modeling, what I think is very high quality advice but it's not good enough to where real humans don't need to be involved. So every single piece of content that we generate is reviewed by, is curated by an actual human. 
Hmm. So the AI is good. And maybe one day I would say it could be one to three years from now, we might be able to, you know, directly interact with the AI. And there are tools, by the way, that are where the AI is, is an AI coaching tool. We don't think it's really completely ready to not have human intervention. So let's stay with AI for just a minute. And I'm going to ask you to make a fearless AI prediction. Okay. A fearless AI prediction. Well, I feel like by giving you a fearless AI prediction, this is fearless, right? Because I'm immediately filled with fear thinking about the fearless it's fearless AI. and being recorded so that we Perfect. could share this with the world. Yes. I think AI is going to make people's lives a lot better, a lot better than it entails actual risk to humans. Okay. From that's, a spending, a more, that's a more optimistic view than what I hear often. You know, look, I think just like anything in life, you know, a tool can be used in a lot of different ways. Um, AI, in my opinion, and this has nothing to do with happy, um, is going to give humans the freedom to create more art and enjoy each other a lot more in the long run. Uh, and it's going to replace a lot of tasks that, you know, I would say will be largely commoditized. And I'm, ho I'm hopeful that more people will be painting, singing, enjoying, you know, good relationships together. I mean, my hope is, is that I'm a humanist and I believe in the inherent good of humans. And I think over time, AI will enrich our lives. Okay. I appreciate the optimism. So let's go back to happy a little bit. Okay. And I'm curious to know specifically, not so much about your, your platform, but as you think about team building in particular, you talked about culture, of course, what would you say are the main ingredients of an effective, cohesive team? Like as a leader, what are you looking for first and foremost to make sure that your team is in a healthy place? I'm going to give you two answers and there's a tension in between them. The first one is personal connections at work, empathy, personal connections, caring. I don't know teams that are sustainably successful that don't have positive work relationships. And mm -hmm. so that requires the, now not every person is going to be exactly the same, but that requires team over me and a willingness to put the team ahead of your own interests. And I think that's rooted in, you know, building a quality relationship with your team. So I don't, I don't, like I said, I would talking to a thousand CEOs. One of the questions I ask is tell me about your leadership team at the top. Like, tell me about the leaders you sit with. And almost every time I got a negative response, it was never like, well, Bill sucks at marketing or Amy's not a good lawyer. Because when you're a chief legal counsel, you're a senior vice president of marketing, like you've got a pretty good skill set. It's always like, I have a really hard time working with Amy. I don't think she's, you know, a, she doesn't work well with our team. It, and so those are the things I hear from senior leaders isn't competence necessarily about what they do. It's the fact that their team doesn't gel. Mm -hmm. So that's one. The other one is, is a, a bias to action. I mean, I think great teams have to be willing to take risks. This does have to do a little bit with psychological safety, because I think that whoever leads that team needs to make it safe to take action. 
Mm -hmm. And teams in paralysis are just afraid to have an edge. They're afraid to take risks. They're afraid to try new things. And so I do think that is a bit of like, it does come from the top because you as a CEO or as a leader do have to create that safety in your team. But teams that are unwilling to have like, to take action rarely accomplish like meaningful success over time. Right, right, wow. Now, I know you did talk about mistakes earlier, but I always do end this segment asking my guests for the biggest mistake that they've made and what they've learned from it. And I share often that the reason I do it is because successful people make mistakes also. And it's important to remind ourselves, but really anyone who's listening, that um, you know, you don't, you don't, you're not born into success. You have to work your way through it. There are ups and downs. So share that with us, please. What would you say was your biggest mistake along your path thus far that has propelled you to further greatness or further success? Yeah, I would say I was a college dropout to start my first company. And I had a tremendous fear of failure coming out of college or, you know, dropping out of college. I don't recommend telling your doctor parents that you're dropping out of college either. But thinking I had to have all the answers and that that's what a CEO, that's what an effective CEO was, was somebody that had, you know, every answer and could always have a, a response uh, that was effective. And, you know, really it was about how do you surround yourself with people that are smarter than you or that have better answers than you do. And then how do you make them better? And so I, I, I guess when I was 25, if you were to ask me what makes a great leader, you know, I would probably give you a list of things that involve competencies. Mm-hmm. And today, if you would ask what makes a great leader, I would say a great leader is somebody that makes all the people around him or her better. Nice. So great, great way to end that segment. And so we're now we're going to transition to rapid fire, short and sweet. I'm going to ask you first, the most effective team building activity or exercise you know? The most effective team building exercise I know. Taking the time to learn your team outside of work. Great. If you could collaborate with any leader or company, who would it be? Tim Cook at Apple. Nice. Okay. Your go-to strategy for making quick and effective decisions. Find the one person that's a subject matter expert that, or, or work hard to find them and ask them for insights and thoughts. You're doing great. Three tips to help you to connect with, uh, with your team quickly. Listen, be empathetic and understand someone's mission in life other than just the company's mission. Cool. The best purchase you've made in the past year for under $100. Oh, geez. Um, My suede iPhone case that I love. Okay. And finally, a productivity tip that helps you to get more done. I write the most important thing that I'm going to get done that day at the very top, and I do not quit until that's finished. Love it. Okay, James. So tell everybody, please, how they can find out more about you, about Happy, anything you're involved with, Where's what's the best place to find you? Happycompanies.com. And uh, you can find me on LinkedIn if you have any questions or if there's anything I can do to help you, I'd love to talk to you. Yeah, we found each other recently there as well. So before we go, 
Uh, you, James, you've given us a lot, and I really appreciate learning your story and how you've gotten here and all of that. Uh, one final life lesson, please, to end the episode. So 10 years ago, I was going through a little bit of a midlife crisis, uh, early, of course, and uh, I had to make a really, really tough call at work. And I, I went to a, a good advisor of mine and I said, I need some advice. I have to make a really tough call at work, really difficult decision involving a person and I don't know how to do it. And that person responded back to me and said, whatever you do in life, do it with love. And I was confused at first. And I said, but I probably need to let this person go. And the response was, is there any moment that requires more love than that? Mm. And that has stood with me in every major decision I've had to make since that. Wow. It kind of reminds me of that episode on Cheers with Norm when he had to fire all these people or became like a firing expert and just was crying with them each time and all that. So the empathy is there. Anyway, James, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the episode today. I've learned a lot and keep up the great work. You know, we definitely need what you're doing and hopefully you can continue to leverage AI and all the tools you've got there to make workplaces happier and uh, teams more cohesive and uh, really bring out the best in everybody. Well, Naftali, thank you very much for the, for the conversation. I really enjoyed it. Awesome. Be well now. Thanks so much for listening to this episode and for investing in yourself so that you can lead to succeed. Before you go, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Your feedback gives the show more social proof and encourages more folks to listen. 